Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Catholic Live. My name is Derek Taylor. I am the proprietor of the lecture series Controversies in Church History, and this is my podcast, um, Catholic Lives, which is about the lives of lesser well-known figures from history, and those who are perhaps not saints, uh, maybe not saints yet, uh, whom we can learn from or instruct for our Catholic faith. And today's episode is called The Poet Priest of the South and the Confederate General. So we have two lives today, the first double lives episode of Catholic Lives. And so uh, let's begin. And the first Catholic life we're talking about here is the life of Father Abram Joseph Ryan, who has been called, is sometimes known to history, as the Poet Priest of the South. And he was a, yes, both a poet and a priest, um, born um, 1838. Uh, and he uh, is known for his poetry about the South, and we'll get to that uh, here in a moment. Uh, born in 1838 in Hagerstown, Maryland, the son of Irish immigrants, who moved around until they eventually settled in St. Louis in 1846, where they had uh, young um, uh, uh, Father Ryan, uh, Abraham Ryan at that point, uh, educated by the Christian brothers in St. Louis. And then at the age of 13, the brothers encouraged him to go into the College of St. Mary of the Barons in Perryville, Missouri, a seminary, to... Um, uh, to see if he had a vocation. And uh, there he began to write poetry for himself and his classmates, began to get a reputation for it. It's also there that he, resol- that he uh, received his call to the priesthood. And he recall- uh, recalled, it was in November of his 16th year, that, quote, uh, like a flash from heaven to my heart during benediction. And after that, I had my name put into a hollow silver heart that hung around the neck of the sweet virgin statue in testimony of my resolve, which rose up into a vow. I never had a regret for that resolve, unquote. Uh, Ryan graduated from St. Mary of the Barons in 1855. Uh, he taught there for a couple more years and was given, um, uh, graduated with minor, uh, um, was uh, given minor orders. Minor orders no longer exist in the, in the, the Latin church, but they had this in 1857. And um, the order that ran the school, the Vincentians, sent him from there in 1858 to upstate New York in Our Lady of the Angels Seminary in Niagara, and was soon joined by his younger brother, David. Now, Ryan only spent a year in Niagara um, for various reasons. As, of course, you know, this is 1858. This is three years before the Civil War break out between the northern and southern states. And Father Ryan and his brother were both proud southerners. They defended themselves and their their heritage um, in upstate New York, but there were tensions um, between the north and the south. Uh, and doubly so in Niagara, because at that time, upstate New York was the epicenter of evangelical Protestantism in the United States. If you don't know, um, the uh, Second Great Awakening, the great revivalist movement within Protestantism, started both in Kentucky and more or less at uh, upper, upstate New York in the early 1800s at the same time. And for most of the 19th century, upstate New York was the center of the Protestant world in the United States. Evangelical Protestantism was also behind two um, movements which um, Father Ryan opposed. One was abolitionism. Almost all the abolitionists who wanted to get rid of slavery were fervent Protestants. And again, he's a, uh, from the South, he's a Southerner, he defended slavery. We'll come to this at the end of, um, to the end of this uh, podcast, or at least the end of his life. 
Um, but uh, upstate New York and the evangelical movement was also the mainstay of the so-called Know Nothing Party. The Know Nothing Party was a nativist political party opposed to immigration and virulently, sometimes hysterically, anti-Catholic. And they were anti-Catholic partly because they were opposed to Irish immigration, which of course, um, Father Ryan's background is Irish. And so, um, partly because Father Ryan, I should mention, has battled poor health all of his life, he would often have to take um, sabbaticals uh, from, his, uh, uh, from his ministry because of poor health. The combination of this uh, led to him withdrawing from the seminary and transferring back to uh, St. Mary of the Barons in 1859. A year later, in 1860, uh, he was ordained priest at his home parish of St. Vincent's in St. Louis on September 12, 1860. Eight days later, seven southern states declared their secession from the Union. Just at the same time, Father Ryan was uh, being assigned to teach at St. Mary's for that year. Several months later, in February of 1861, the Confederate States of America was formed a month later, in March, Abraham Lincoln was sworn in as president. Father Ryan so disliked Lincoln, disliked Lincoln, that he actually changed his Christian name from Abraham to Abram, just to be avoid, just to avoid having to share it with Lincoln. So uh, opposed was he to his uh, abolitionist principles. A month later, uh, in April, uh, Fort Sumter in South Carolina fell to the Confederates and the United States Civil War began. For the next year, Father Ryan agonized over whether or not to stay within the Vincentine Order. Uh, finally, in 1862, he did leave, though, and became a parish priest. And throughout the war, uh, first going to uh, Illinois, but then coming uh, south, uh, he acted as a visiting priest. Well, also, and we have records of this, he sort of skipped away uh, for months at a time to go act as a volunteer chaplain for the Confederate armies. He didn't have any official, um, I don't think, Catholic chaplains then, uh, where he administered to dying soldiers on both sides of the war. In the last two years, he was stationed in several parishes uh, in East Tennessee, uh, particularly the last two years of the war, he spent most of it in Clarksville, Tennessee, where there as elsewhere, his preaching attracted admirers among both Catholic, but also non-Catholics alike. Protestants came to hear him preach from the time, even when he was a seminarian, uh, people admired his preaching. During the war, uh, Ryan continued to write poetry, and in fact, two of his more moving poems, I won't read them here, were tributes to his younger brother David, who, unlike um, Abram Ryan, left the seminary, joined the Southern Army, and uh, died uh, fighting in 1863 in Kentucky. And so, um, a testimony to his love for his brother, but also to his poetic skills. When the war came to an end, uh, in 1865, he published in June 24th, in a uh, newspaper in New York, of all places, he published his most famous poem, uh, the one for which he is most, most well known, and the one that more than any other earned him the nickname of the Poet Priest of the South, which was called The Conquered Banner. The poem, Mourn the Loss of the War, uh, also the loss of those who fought for the South, while at the same time admitting and accepting defeat, which is worth mentioning because that wasn't the case, obviously, a little of the South. And uh, the last stanza of the Conquered Banner reads like this. Furl that banner softly, slowly. Treat it gently, it is holy. For it droops above the dead. Touch it not, 
Enfold it never. Let it droop there, furled forever, for its people's hopes are dead. In the post-war era, during Reconstruction, Father Ryan moved uh, to several different parishes across the South. First to Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, until 1867 or so, and then for three years to Augusta, Georgia, and then for the for, uh, better part of the last 10 years, uh, 1870-1880, in Mobile, Alabama, uh, giving retreats uh, in places, uh, preaching. Uh, according to his diaries, he would preach three sermons a day and spent long hours into the night in the confessional as well. So in demand was he. <clears throat> well, in Augusta, Georgia, he founded and edited a weekly um, journal called The Banner of the South, where he published much of his early poetry, also published other authors, published a short story by Mark Twain. Uh, and in 1880 appeared um, a work of his poetry called Poems, Patriotic, Religious, and Mis uh, Miscellaneous. Uh, which he went north to have published, and uh, became a bestseller. Uh, in fact, the um, um, book went through 47 editions uh, up to the 1930s, so it was very popular in the um, uh, post-war era. Um, after 1880, I had to take a year off, uh, from 1881 to 1882, because of his poor health. He moved from Mobile to Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, I finished writing a book. Um, the next year, however, he returned north to give lectures uh, all across the Northeast, like Boston, New York, where he was well received, as well as uh, to recite his poetry uh, at the um, unveiling of the monument to Robert E. Lee in Washington and Lee University, which is still, uh, as far as I know, still standing uh, for the time being, uh, as well as give the commencement address at the University of, uh, of Virginia. For the next few years, his whereabouts are kind of uh, sketchy, you don't have great sources for it, but we do know that in 1886, uh, he traveled to a Franciscan abbey in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, there to make a retreat for himself. Uh, but as soon as he got there, he fell ill. And a few days later, uh, on April 22nd, which is Holy Thursday of that year, Father Abram Joseph Ryan uh, passed away. And his body was returned to Mobile, Alabama, where it still rests today in the old Catholic cemetery there. Now, the thing, of course, we're all thinking about because of the uh, current events in the United States is what about Father Ryan in the South and slavery? Father Ryan was a man of his time, uh, and he held a very romantic view of the Old South. Uh, he largely ignored uh, the evils of slavery. And you have to remember, of course, being a priest, don't think his family owned slaves. Uh, he was probably distant from it in some regards. Um, and if we're going to hold up someone for for a model for sanctity, we should probably rather hold up Father August Augustus Tolton. If you don't know who Augustus Tolton was, he was the first <clears throat> African-American to be ordained a priest in the United States. He's either, I think he's soon to be beatified or has already been so, I can't recall. Um, his is a potential uh, topic for a future Catholic Lives, lives podcast, hint, hint. Um, but if you're looking for sanctity, you should probably go toward Father Tolton. I say this because I don't think Father Ryan was an evil person. He was by far not the worst of the people who uh, apologized for the South. And in fact, most of his, uh, uh, most of the things you can blame him for are the result of excessive patriotism, which again, sometimes that can go awry. Uh, you can take love of country, you know, beyond uh, where it rightfully goes, which in this case, I don't think we need to despise him for it. 
Uh, and moreover, even Father Ryan, even after the war, despite his, his, uh, <clears throat> despite his uh, um, poetry elegizing the Old South, he wrote many poems about uh, the Catholic faith, and in fact, he realized in the end that was his true calling, not as poet of the slave South, but as, uh, that, uh, as that of a Catholic priest. And so I'll just quote you here one passage from one of his last, one of his poems. Illustrate this. Um, that he knew that was his true identity in the end. And so here's the, the poem. In the temple of fame, I will write my name, I send with the poet's pen. And I will weave me a crown of such renown mid earth's immortal men. Such was my thought, the aim I sought. That dream has since gone by. To the higher shrine of love divine, my lowly feet have trod. I want no fame, no other name, than this, a priest of God. <clears throat> As we come to our second Catholic life in this podcast, during his time uh, while I was living in Mobile, Alabama, Father Ryan made many trips to the city of New Orleans. Um, on to give retreats to, uh, for nuns and convents and places like this. And on one of these trips, uh, he met and befriended a former Confederate general who was now uh, who traveled to New Orleans on business. And uh, eventually he persuaded him to become Catholic. The general's name? James Longstreet, who was, during the Civil War, Robert E. Lee's second-in-command and one of the most controversial figures of the entire U.S. Civil War. Longstreet was born in Edgefield District, South Carolina in 1821. Um, his background, strangely enough, oddly enough, was actually Dutch. Uh, his uh, ancestor was named uh, Langestreet. I think I can't pronounce that for you, but it's not spelled Longstreet, but he was a Dutch immigrant uh, to the Dutch colony of New, 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 New Netherland um, in 1657, which if you don't know the history, New, uh, uh, New Netherland was a Dutch colony, which, taken over by the English in 1664, became New York. And so the name Langstreet, uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right, I don't, I don't know Dutch, but it became anglicized to Longstreet. And so his parents were actually from the north. Uh, they were originally from uh, his father James and mother Mary, uh, from New Jersey and uh, Maryland, respectively. <clears throat> Later on, they owned a cotton plantation near the present village of Gainesville in North Georgia, northeastern Georgia. Since the local education system there wasn't uh, great, his parents sent him to live with his uncle, Augustus Longstreet, who was a newspaper editor and Methodist minister in Augusta, Georgia. And while I lived with him, he was able to get a better education. Uh, by 1837, uh, his uncle was trying to get him an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy, but uh, the vacancy for his conditional district in Georgia had already been filled. However, his mother, by then a widow, had moved to Alabama, where the congressional representative there was able to get him an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy. Now, the fact of the matter is, Longstreet was not a very good student, uh, even though he was very popular with his fellow cadets. He graduated in 1842 from the Academy, ranking 54th of 56 cadets, <clears throat> which I guess should give you an example of uh, how useless an education is, because he'll become one of the great generals of the Civil War, but okay. Um, and while there, he, uh, he made, uh, developed a lifelong friendship with uh, a young cadet named Ulysses S. Grant, uh, who graduated a year later in 1843. So again, it's who you know in life, not what you know. 
Uh, upon graduating, he was commissioned a brevet second lieutenant in the 4th U.S. Infantry, infantry uh, and shortly thereafter married uh, in 1840, uh, excuse me, uh, met, to be his future wife in 1842. Uh, they eventually would uh, get married in 1848 and have 10 children. Louise Garland was her name. Uh, at the same time, he was serving um, following his commission with the U.S. 8th Infantry in the Mexican-American War. If you don't know about the Mexican-American War, it's kind of the more, more notorious wars the United States has ever fought. Pretty much a land grab. Um, the um, <clears throat> U.S. government at the time wanted some Mexican land. They basically ginned up a conflict on the border. In fact, later on, he would serve there. Would, um, would Longstreet, along with uh, Grant, Grant later in his life would recall this with regret because he didn't say anything because pretty much everybody in the army knew this was this was a, a, a pretty immoral thing to do to start this war but in fact um, Longstreet uh, uh, acquitted himself well the Battle of uh, Chapel Tepic in September 1847 he was wounded in the thigh following recovery he served on duty in Texas uh, Fort Bliss and received several promotions thereafter reaching the rank of major by July 1858, he became a paymaster uh, for the 8th Infantry. The turning point for Longstreet uh, in terms of the Civil War came with, as with many, the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1861. Like many Southerners, they felt they could not serve the man. He resigned his commission from the U.S. Army in June of that year and joined the Confederacy, uh, reporting to the Confederate States Army in Richmond where initially he was given a lower rank, but after getting a meeting with President Jefferson Davis, was appointed to the rank of Brigadier General and assigned to uh, assist uh, General Beauregard at Manassas, Virginia, where he was given the command of some regiments. Um, he participated, uh, his, his army, in the First Battle of Bull Run. Wasn't very significant. Um, uh, after um, serving, uh, uh, after uh, more... Um, Exceptional service, next, uh, and a few more battles. He was made a major general and assumed the of, of a division in the Army of the Potomac. Uh, and then finally, in 1862, um, the uh, general of the Confederate Army, General Johnston, was wounded, and Robert E. Lee became the chief military officer for the Confederate Army, and he became attached from Lee uh, from this time forward for the rest of the war essentially becoming his right-hand man. Um, basically, I think Lee said at one point that uh, Longstreet was his right arm or his right hand. What's your metaphor? I can't remember which one. But, um, in fact, by the fall of 1862, he had been made lieutenant general, along with his colleague, uh, Stonewall Jackson, but Lee made Longstreet, um, um, promoted Longstreet first. And in fact, there's a general, as far as I can tell, a general consensus that he probably was the second best general in the Confederate Army. Um, and as I, I won't go through the, the bulk of, he's basically involved in every major campaign with Lee in the Eastern Theater. Um, but like Father Ryan, he also had tragedy strike him during the war. Uh, a scarlet fever epidemic hit uh, Richmond in 1862, which claimed the life of three of his children, uh, one-year-old daughter Marianne, a four-year-old son James, and a six-year-old son Augustus. Very nearly killed his other son as well. Uh, and these, these deaths changed Longstreet's life. Um, he had been before this outgoing, almost kind of a uh, uh, bon vivant, a partier type, liked to drink a lot. And after this, uh, he became more somber, more withdrawn. He also became, for the purposes of our story here, we will get to his conversion, uh, a devout Episcopalian, he was an Episcopalian um, Christian Protestant. 
and rarely drank thereafter. Suffice to say, um, as I mentioned before, Lee was dependent upon him. Um, near several of the major uh, campaigns uh, in the war, Lee would pitch his tent close to Longstreet so they could uh, confer with each other. Uh, and even though they, they differed fundamentally in their philosophy of how war should be conducted, Lee valued Longstreet for his strategic uh, intelligence. The thing that makes him controversial, uh, in fact, is the Battle of Gettysburg. And if you don't know about the Battle of Gettysburg, Lee and Longstreet got into a uh, heated debate about what to do during the battle. And if you know this is the turning point in the war, if the South had won this battle, they would have very likely won the war, or at least had a chance to. They lost it. That was pretty much the beginning of the end. <clears throat> if you don't know how the battle went and why it went awry, long story short, the Union Army managed to capture the higher ground on the sort of eastern part of the battlefield. And so Lee concocted a very complicated um, but ingenious plan to try to attack uphill at the center of the Union line. Longstreet objected. Uh, he didn't think they could get through there. He wanted to take part of the army and withdraw and um, go around behind um, uh, the uh, Union army commanded by General Meade and start marching south as they were going back toward Washington, D.C., you know, threatening the city. It was undefended at that point anyway. It was a pretty good idea. The idea being it would draw the Union Army off their high position. Lee could join them a little bit later. Uh, they at least have a fight on uh, level ground. They were outnumbered, were the, were the Confederates. Lee overruled him, and his plan um, failed. Uh, there are still disputes to this day about why it failed. Uh, Lee ordered a disastrous charge across a mile of open ground, which to this day confounds military historians. They don't know why he did it. Uh, it was a real, real big gamble and it didn't pay off. And so, <clears throat> we'll get to this in a moment, but what's going to happen in the post-war uh, era, after the war, is that Longstreet's going to make an escape go for Gettysburg. And it'll become so because, for basically for several reasons. The first of which, if you know, after the war, of course, the uh, U.S. Army continued to occupy the South, and the United States government at that point, it was controlled by the Republican Party. They tried. They were trying to reconstruct it, right? Trying to make it, you know, a modern industrial society. Trying to give African Americans equal rights. The defeated Southerners didn't take kindly to this. Uh, they resented, to say the least, um, the efforts of Republicans. Longstreet actually joined the Republican Party. He became a Republican politician. Uh, he settled in New Orleans after the war. And one of the reasons, by the way, for wondering why he, he did this, and partly because he thought things were over, the war had been fought, the Union had won, they had a right to impose a settlement. It's also due to his friendship with Ulysses S. Grant. Um, Grant he actually went to Grant and applied for a position in the government. He gave him one. Uh, he made him surveyor of customs for the Port of New Orleans in the Grant administration. This, to say the least, um, angered his former political, his former... Uh, comrades in the uh, uh, in the Confederacy, and from uh, uh, excuse me, from 1872 onward, uh, a campaign uh, was led uh, by former officers of the, of the uh, Army of Northern Virginia, particularly uh, Jubal Early, who was a cavalry officer, uh, to blame Longstreet for the defeat at Gettysburg. They wrote pamphlets and gave speeches, and essentially blackened his name. And in response, he gave speeches himself, and he did. He probably this is probably the thing that got him more in hot water than anything else. He gave speeches in which he defended himself and essentially said the blame for the, the battle's um, loss was on Lee. He blamed Robert E. Lee for this. And again, if you don't know why, if you don't know American history, I know I have listeners who aren't from America. 
Robert E. Lee was a, a revered figure in the American South, had, still is to this day in some, some regards. And yes, he's the, one of the guys who's having his statue pulled down in the United States right now. Um, you didn't do that in the South and get away with it very easily. Uh, it blackened his reputation, to say the least. And he never really stopped doing this, by the way. He defended himself the rest of his life. Even after his life, we'll get to this, his wife defended him. Uh, he wrote a book later in his life called From Manassas to Appomattox. Uh, and in fact, by the way, modern uh, historical opinion has turned around uh, in the last 20, 30 years. For the, there's still debates, but for the most part, uh, the general, um, uh, at least the majority of historians I've looked at, think it was Lee's fault. And the reason he gets blamed, of course, is because of Reconstruction politics. Um, which, by the way, include, and we'll get to this in a moment, but uh, include race, we'll get to that. But um, He continued, by the way, serving in Grant's administration. He later appointed Longstreet and Grant to uh, be ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. And following that assignment, he also served at Longstreet as the U.S. Railroad Commissioner. In 1874, he also became ad, uh, uh, adjutant general of the Louisiana Militia. And um, if you don't know, again, across the South uh, in the 1870s, the longer uh, Reconstruction wore on, the more violence there was. Uh, essentially insurgent, effectively terrorist campaigns by former Confederates and other whites who wanted to wanted the military out of their, their, um, their states, wanted to, again, they wanted to, they weren't willing, of course, to share the South basically equally with, uh, with blacks. Uh, began implementing violence, and there was actually an uprising, sort of like a, I don't know, a pitched battle that took place um, in 1874, and uh, led by a, a group called the White League, essentially a paramilitary group made up of ex-Confederates. And in that skirmish with these people, the former Confederate general, James Longstreet, led a, a regiment of men, mostly of, of African Americans, uh, I led them against the uh, <laughs> uh, against uh, these ex-Confederates, in which he was wounded and taken prisoner by them. Uh, they actually imprisoned him in his own customs house, and while they had him captive, they actually uh, taunted him by giving him the rebel yell. If you don't know what this is, if you're not familiar, during the Civil War, um, soldiers from the, the Southern states, the Confederacy, in war in battle, they would give this really shrieking cry when they were about to sort of finish off uh, a Union army, trying to intimidate them. And so they gave him the rebel yell, and, and apparently Longstreet just sort of looked uh, uh, sort of disgusted at them and said, I have heard the yell before. Um, the federal troops had to be sent in uh, to New Orleans to put this uprising down. 38 people were killed. But after leading blacks against the southern whites, his career was over in New Orleans. He had to go back to Gainesville, Georgia, which he did in 1875. Which brings us, of course, back to Father Ryan. Um, because he came back to New Orleans on um, for business trips, and that's uh, where he met Father Ryan, and where he eventually, um, um, on March seventh, uh, March seventh, eighteen seventy seven, was received into the Catholic Church. And um, part of the problem that um, Longtree ran into is that he'd been Episcopalian, of course, was devout. Um, increasingly, when he began to, when he went to his Episcopalian church, uh, he would be totally isolated. People would actually move away from him or simply not show up if they knew he was coming uh, because of his views on Lee and because of the abuse that he had, uh, because of the accusations against him uh, about betraying the South, which he did not do. And so um, Father Ryan convinced him that the Catholic Church, you know, doesn't care about politics. Uh, people come to Mass to worship God and not to play politics. 
and uh, promised him that he would be welcomed, quote-unquote, with open arms if he decided to join the church, which he did. And for the rest of his life, Longstreet remained a devout Catholic until his death in 1904. And at his funeral in 1904, uh, the Mass was presided over by Bishop Benjamin J. Kiley of Savannah, Georgia, who had also served in the Army of Northern Virginia during the Civil War. Uh, and so another, uh, another uh, Catholic involved in all this. After Longstreet's death, his widow, his second wife, uh, Helena, uh, Helen Dorch Longstreet, uh, who was Catholic herself uh, from birth, um, defended his memory um, uh, vociferously, and for a long time, she lived 58 years, she lived until 1962, uh, defending his memory and his record in the Civil War. She was also, and by the way, kind of a strange deal, but he was 70, he married her after his first wife died, uh, and married her in 1897, this is eight years after his first wife, Louisa died, or not Louisa, but yeah, Louisa died. And um, when he was 76 and she was 34. <laughs> so not your, not your typical marriage. Um, but she was a fervent Catholic, and Helen um, Longstreet had a chapel built in their home in Gainesville. And this would actually become, in time, uh, Gainesville, Georgia's first Catholic church, St. Michael's, uh, would hold its services there. And that parish is still active today. St. Michael's Parish uh, is still there in Gainesville, Georgia. And so there you have it. You have the legacy of someone who served in the Confederacy and yet gave his life over to God in Christ and the Catholic Church. And so, again, part of the reason I wanted to do these two lies was what's going on in the United States right now. And uh, again, uh, one of the things about the Catholic Church, I think two things. One, as Catholics, we can recognize evil and call for what it is. And uh, I think you can see from what I've uh, said so far, I kind of admire both Father Ryan and uh, uh, James Longstreet. We have to be honest here. They served, essentially it was an evil cause. Uh, chattel slavery is a really evil, awful thing. And this is one of the painful lessons of history, is that people you admire, people maybe otherwise good people, can be caught up in these things and do this. On the other hand, uh, in the Catholic faith, but we also believe in forgiveness and reconciliation. And, uh, and so, and uh, neither one of these figures, whatever their faults were, not by far, there were many worse. They were not the worst of people who sort of made excuses for, um, for, for the pre-war South. Um, but they also, of course, sought God. And at least it came out of this. You see the fruits, of course, of James Longstreet's conversion and the other good fruits of Father Ryan's life. Uh, as well. And so hopefully it'll make it cause us to reflect on this, uh, cause us to think about our history here in the United States, but also um, thank God that he cares enough to try to convert people, even people who've, you know, again, again, been involved in evil things like this. Um, and um, even like Father Ryan, we realize, you know, we can be patriotic, and we have problems, of course, obviously, in the, the, the church today, politics invading it. Um, what these teach us, what these lives teach us, I think, is that in the end we know that God and what he wants and what his holy church is for have to take precedence ultimately. Even though we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be patriots, we're supposed to love our country, if it comes down to it, we have, must choose God. And I think hopefully we can both do that, but maybe do uh, better um, than uh, Father Ryan and, and uh, to Longstreet. So there you have it, your first double Catholic Lives episode. If you like this, if it was good for you, please go to um, uh, Apple or where uh, Apple Podcast and like, subscribe, leave a review, give us good reviews if you like it. 
Uh, you can subscribe other places as well. Please go to our YouTube channel where I have the uh, recordings of my lectures uh, on there. You can uh, access those there, like and subscribe, uh, subscribe to that there. Facebook page is usually where I, I, I post a lot of things. Um, uh, I also have a website, which I'll be updating soon. Uh, there'll be some announcements coming um, uh, regarding the uh, lectures and the podcast. Uh, another few weeks, you should have your next Catholic uh, Lives episode. Um, hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you. Take care and God bless.